Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an amazing, whew, boy, I am like out of breath. I am so excited for tonight's guest. I will introduce her in just a little bit, but I know you need to know how the show works. And so that's what we're going to do. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get your question on the air. You can also follow along live with our space cadets tuning in right now from literally around the world. I suppose some time zones are underrepresented or not represented at all. I don't believe anyone from Antarctica is tuning in tonight. That could change at any minute now, but all are welcome. Now, space cadets, listeners, listen, this is going to be a fun show. I'm so thrilled to speak to our next guest on tonight's Ask a Spaceman. It's Moya McTeer. And Moy, I'm going to apologize in advance if I ever call you Moira because I'm watching a little bit too much of Shit's Creek. I'm catching up on it, but I'm going to I'm going to do my best. It's Moya McTeer. She grew up in the middle of the woods in rural Pennsylvania without running water. Uh, Midwest represent right there. From there, she went to Harvard University, where she became the first person in the school's history to study both astrophysics and folklore and mythology. Now I have your interest, don't I? Now she's pursuing her PhD in astronomy at Columbia University in New York City, uh, studying how the Milky Way structure influences exoplanet populations. Outside of research, Moya has written a science fiction novel, designed an exhibit for the New York Hall of Science, and given more than 100 talks and performances about science. Her website is moyamcteer.com, and Moya... Welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, it's so good to be here. That was a very nice introduction. Thank you. Thank you. I did not write that. Nancy wrote that. And she's very, very good at writing guest bios, isn't she? She's good at everything she does, I think. <laughs> so Moya, I got. I have to ask right off the bat, uh, how you doing? Uh, COVID <laughs> is in <laughs> New York City, kind of hard. Yep. I've experienced that firsthand myself. How you doing? Um, I mean, the answer changes every day. If you had asked me yesterday, I would have, I wouldn't have been able to answer. I was crying all of yesterday. Mm, mm, A lot of crying happened yesterday. So much crying. Um, But today I'm feeling pretty good. I worked on my dissertation today and it wasn't horrible. uh, So I'm (laughs) feeling great. Uh, So dissertation. So you're, so you're close to the finish line. I am. Yeah. I'm set to defend in April. Oh, now. The saying is, first of all, congratulations, because you you. are going to earn your PhD. For those of you who don't know, the the dissertation is, uh, the defense is the last step where you have your giant dissertation, this book that you wrote about your personal journey through the universe, and you defend it in front of a committee, and supposedly... The hardest part of getting your PhD is actually organizing the committee itself. Um, I have my committee set. So you're done. You just I earned a PhD. So. We're just going to call you Dr. Matir right now because I you did it. You take did it. the hardest part. Um, <laughs> what you. is your dis- What is the subject of your dissertation? Uh, well, based on the title that I wrote earlier today, uh, it's called Why Are We Here? here in italics, uh, constraining the Milky Way's galactic habitable, habitable zone. Um, ah. so there's, yeah. The now we, habitable now we know zone. about oh. habitable zones. 
uh, right. around stars. Talk about them, the Milky Way habitable zone. Yeah, the idea of the galactic habitable zone came around in like the 70s or 80s. And the idea was that there are probably places in the galaxy where habitable planets are most likely to form based on a few different criteria. Um, you can't prove that, but you can try to find places where we're pretty sure habitable planets won't form based on, you know, proximity to a supernova explosion. You know, if you're near one of those, that's a sign that life probably isn't going to take hold or uh, just being around a lot of stars because they give off really high amounts of dangerous radiation if you're too close to them. And so those things were what they were studying in the eighties. Now we have beautiful data about the position and motion of stars around the galaxy, thanks to the Gaia mission. And so I use uh, Gaia data and take a dynamics approach to the galactic habitable zone, trying to figure out if like the motion of things is affecting habitable planets in any way. And can, can we get a little spoiler here for your yeah. dissertation? Do, do the motions of stars affect the habitability of planets? They do. They really do. Uh, mostly my research is, is saying that the bulge of the Milky Way, the central region uh, of our galaxy is a bad place to focus our search for life. Uh, I found in a paper I published a few months ago that 80%, 80 80% of stars in the Milky Way bulge have close encounters with other stars that could potentially rip planets away from the systems. So that's unfortunate because the core of the galaxy is where there's a large fraction of stars. About 30%. uh, But we still have a lot of stars in the disk to, I mean, our sun is in the disk of the galaxy. If you aren't familiar with the galaxy's anatomy, if you don't breathe and, and eat and sleep Milky Way anatomy like I do, uh, I think of the galaxy as a pancake. Uh, and all of the, the stars and the gas and the dust that we see are in are in the pancake. They're like blueberries or chocolate chips. Uh, but all of my work focuses on the, the middle of the pancake, which is where the analogy kind of breaks down because it's, it's actually a spherical bulge in the middle and not just a flat region okay so it's a very poorly made pancake yeah exactly it's a pancake with with yeah with really thick batter that you pile up in the middle and then blueberries on the outside (laughs) i can't we could we could spend an hour going down this analogy uh so the center of the milky way is kind of bad news in terms of habitability because of all these close (laughs) encounters and these close encounters eject planets is that they can. Is that, oh. Yeah, there. I mean, we we aren't totally sure. It's not like we can see what's happening in the center of the galaxy, but we can run simulations. And based on those simulations, if you have stars flying close enough to each other at the right speed and at the right angle and with the right mass ratio, there are a bunch of caveats, right? But if you have this happening, then it could strip planets away from their host stars or interrupt the planet formation process altogether. Mm, I see. I see. What about uh, the other ed- edge of the habitable zone, the the outskirts of the galaxy? Oh, there's just like not much happening there. Uh, it's also it's difficult to define the edge because the galaxy kind of just tapers off, um, and and there's no real definable edge to it. And so I don't I don't focus there. But there also just aren't a lot of stars by the time you get that far away from the center of the Milky Way. 
Got it, got it. So that's uh, this is the main subject of your dissertation research, and uh, you obviously have a very productive scientific life, uh, doing the whole research thing and dissertation thing and thesis thing, and, and talking to your peers and writing papers. But you also have an like a whole other secret identity. I do. <laughs> I do. So at during the day, you are Moya McDear graduate student at Columbia University, astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. But by night, you are you know, still Moya McTeer, but you're doing other things. What are you doing? I do science communication in any format I can find it. Um, I host a podcast. I am writing a book right now about the Milky Way. Uh, I am also, I teach classes I about fictional world building, which is what my podcast is about. Can you tell I'm like weirdly uncomfortable talking about myself and what I do? Because it's, it's a, uh, I'm not doing this very well. Get, get used to it Thanks. because you're um, an interesting person. Thank you. Uh, so the podcast is called Exolore. It's all about fictional world building, but using facts to imagine these fictional worlds. Ooh. And uh, it's, it's really rooted in my, my two fields that I studied in college. In fact, the word exolore, the name of the podcast is a portmanteau of exoplanet, which is what I studied in college and folklore, which is the other thing I studied in college. Yes. Yes. So, so what brought you to study those two subjects at Harvard and, and how do you see them blending together? Like you give us an example of, of what we might encounter in the exolore podcast. Yeah. Um, How I got into it, the answer is kind of disappointing. Food. I got into it because of food. The folklore department. Food is never disappointing. That's true. Um, But it it might not be a satisfying answer to, oh, why did you make this decision about your life? Um, So yeah, the folklore department had a lot of tea and cakes and cookies and the astro department had a lot of pizza and through some like weird topsy-turvy confluence of events, I ended up studying both of them that's the the short of it um what type of things can you expect from exolore well we do a lot of different things on the show but the the base of it is that space influences our culture in weird in weird ways that we don't think about all the time like um the clothes that we're wearing right now are different from the clothes that we wear at other times of the year because of the weather and that is directly related to how our planet is oriented towards the sun and how we orbit around it. Uh, and so in the show, in Exolore, I try to make people think about these fundamental properties of our world that we often just don't think about and then figure out how it relates to our everyday lives. That is, that's just cool. I, that's <laughs> just cool. Uh, I related to that. I have a question here from the space guest from Russell, who's asking about uh, Aboriginal cave paintings. I'm assuming he's meaning the Aboriginal people, Aboriginal peoples of Australia. Uh, mm-hmm. Do these cave paintings or any cave paintings around the world um, depict real astronomical events in our ancient past? Yeah, they're definitely. Uh examples of that happening around the world. This is a field called archaeoastronomy, archaeology and astronomy combined. It's studying the knowledge of um, indigenous people and older civilizations, the knowledge that they left behind of the night sky. So we aren't the first people who have tracked the motions of stars and planets across the sky. People have been doing that for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so I, one example that I can think of, although I think this is 
apocryphal. I think this has been debunked, um, but there's a, a cave painting somewhere, and I don't know the details, but um, astronomers and archaeoastronomers used to think that it was showing a supernova explosion, uh, and I think we have since figured out that it's it's not true, but there are other examples of cave paintings of real supernovae that are real. Nice. I think I know the one you're referring to. It's in New Mexico, in Chaco Canyon. <clears throat> Uh, and I've seen yeah, it, right. and there's like a handprint, and the, yes. there's the there's a big bright star, and there's also a crescent moon, uh, yeah. and yeah, it, it it could be, it couldn't be like based on what I've read, it's like possible, but it's not exactly conclusive because there just isn't enough context for it. Yeah. Um. So, what role do you see mythology and folk stories? playing in in modern day science or is this something that is just a part of our past no i i use folklore when whenever i can to communicate science because in my mind folklore and mythology they were the they were humankind's first attempt at science um we, we look at myths, like we look, if you look at the ancient Greek myths or Norse myths or whatever, they seem totally old and outdated and like nonsensical. Um, the idea that you could believe that an eclipse is like a giant wolf out there eating the sun, like that sounds ridiculous. But when you stop and think about the information that people had available at the time and the fact that these myths were their way of trying to make sense of the world around them, and it, it is like science. Um, and so I, I try to bridge those two in that way and, and show people, you know, here's something that people have been telling stories about for thousands of years. Here's the data and the science that we have to explain it now. What's the, the connection between the two? Is there any truth that we can find? Is there any way that like knowing both of these is greater than the sum of, of the individual parts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of modern science really is a storytelling, but with data. Yeah, exactly. And and so when you go to explore, it, like in your ExoLore podcast, and what's the URL for that, by the way? It's ExoLorePod.com. ExoLorePod.com. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ExoLore podcast, when you, when you explore this creative possibility of, of other worlds or, or science fiction, how does the process of science inform the imaginative and creative process like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, it starts with process. So I know as a scientist uh, who has had many illuminating conversations with people in other disciplines that there's a, a kind of waterfall effect to how the world has come to be. Uh, so the planet formed and then life emerged, biology and evolution happened, and then culture happened because of our, our brains, our psychology. Uh, so that that's the sequence that things actually happen in. And so when I'm building worlds and when I'm teaching other people how to build worlds, I tell them to create things in that same sequence. Uh, so figure out the environment of your world and then go to biology and then go to culture in that order. Um, and I think that facts are really important because it kind of removes some of the pressure of creativity. Uh, if you're just staring at a blank screen and you're trying to create a world and you don't know where to start and, um, you know, there's, there's so many possibilities, then using facts kind of constrains that in a way that I find really comforting. Does that, if that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. The facts uh, ground you. 
the, yes. the facts, uh, the flesh out, they make the world real because we live in a world of, of things that you can see and touch and taste and smell and eat. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, I was building a, a creepy world a few months ago for, for this game designer, and I wanted it to feel like a forest, but a really creepy forest where the trees bled. I wanted it to look like the trees were bleeding. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out what type of tree to put on this world. I could make up a new one, or I could use one that people are already familiar with, which is helpful when you're telling stories. And so I did research on what different tree sap color is. Um, and I found that nutmeg trees have reddish sap. Uh, and so I used nutmeg trees in this world, which meant it was like this creepy bleeding forest, but it also smelled like Christmas. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'll never think of Christmas the same way again. <laughs> related to that, I have a question here from the Space Cadets. This is from Arjan on YouTube. Uh, do you find yourself critiquing planets in sci-fi books and movies? All the time. All the time. It, it, uh, it's actually a problem. My college roommate's family refuses to watch sci-fi movies with me these days because I ruined gravity for them. Like they call gravity the movie that Moya ruined. So oh. I'm, I'm very critical. I try this not is the to be Sandra Bullock movie. Yeah. Okay. With yeah. a George Clooney, I think. George Clooney. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I, I also, I don't want to be, I don't know if I can swear here. I don't want to be a jerk. Uh, and so I'm not going to like ruin a movie. If someone is like, Hey Moya, don't do that. Or Hey Moya, I really like this. Let's not do that. Um, I also don't ruin movies that are obviously not real. It's so, like, I'm not going to sit there and critique galaxy quest or Futurama. Like, I'm, <laughs> no one's, right, no right, one's looking it's... at that thinking that it's, it's an educational thing. So, so what do you think is besides gravity? What do you think is the most egregious <laughs> movie out there or just more generally like what are the most egregious sins that movies and books uh can make when they try to create worlds and present them as uh authentic mm. um one example that comes to mind is raised by wolves which is a show that just came out on hbo max um either earlier this i guess late last year and it was set on a it was supposed to be set on a real planet kepler 22b i think uh, which has data on it. Like you can go to the NASA Exoplanet Archive and look up data about this planet. But when you look at the data and you look at how the show presented it, they're, it's, they're totally different worlds. Um, it would have been a lot better, I think, if Raised by Wolves just hadn't mentioned the name of the planet or, or like said that they were using a totally made up one. Uh, so that, that bothers me. Other things that bother me a lot are... Um, humanoid aliens being everywhere some universes explain it really well like um stargate i'm binging stargate right now they explain it really well yeah it, it, it's funny you mentioned stargate one of the space cadets uh cool worlds just said oh i know moya she has a fascinatingly unique skill set blending astro with mythology p.s ask her about stargate <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so what's up with stargate moya huh um, well, I am near the end of season four. I think I started watching about two or three weeks ago, so I'm loving it. I watched um, a little bit of it when I was a kid growing up with my mom, but I I think it's so well done. Uh, I am planning on, on 
letting Stargate inspire a lot of season two of Exolore, uh, building out some of the worlds that the SG-1 team visits in the show, um, even talking about some of the ways that the show was made. Uh, there are really cool languages in the show, and I would love to talk to a linguist about how you actually develop a fictional language for a world that you're working on. So uh, I have nothing but love for Stargate. Do you have plans? And this is another Space Cadet question again from Arjan. Do you have plans to bring in scientists from other fields like linguists or biologists or geologists or even economists uh, to help flesh out these these worlds? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I almost never have other astronomers on the show because I figure, you know, we can only really scratch the surface of the worlds that we build because each episode is about an hour long. And so I figure if we're only being that superficial, then I probably have enough astronomy knowledge to cut it. So I, I bring on other people. Um, I've had psychologists, uh, neuroscientists, zooarchaeologists. That was a really cool episode. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of people for different backgrounds, I think, make the show a lot more interesting than if it was a bunch of astronomers trying to build out planets. Oh yeah. No one wants to listen to a show hosted by a bunch of astronomers, except for the weekly space hangout of which you are a regularly a appearing contributor i am yeah but but that's not building worlds that's talking about cool space facts which is, is very different requires a different skill set <laughs> you would know I, you you were a part of it weren't I you was, i was I, I have great memories of my time uh they called me the kraken on there <laughs> as in release the kraken because i would and it still happens on this show uh when like a bad science story comes out that's overhyped mm. or wrong and like i just tear into it and talk about this it always ends up being a, a discussion about statistics because yeah. that's what 90 percent of science is about uh pivoting a little bit i have another question a lot of space kids are asking so many cool questions tonight infinite monkey over on youtube is asking is astrology folklore Oh, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, folklore has a really broad definition. Uh, I consider folklore to be the collection of stories shared by a culture. Um, and culture is also very widely defined. Um, so yeah, astrology is absolutely folklore. And I think that in the same way that I think myths were early uh, or like served the same purpose as science, um, astrology served the not totally but one purpose that it served was like getting people to pay attention to the stars and the night sky uh, absolutely yes. absolutely uh what speaking of stories and books rumor has it that you're writing a book rumor has it right all right tell us about the book <laughs> uh it's uh tentatively called the unauthorized biography of the Milky Way. Uh, I think I'm going to change it to pay attention to me. <laughs> um, the, the Great book, title. Thank you. Um, the book is about the formation and evolutionary history of the Milky Way, but I'm writing it from the galaxy's perspective as if it's writing its own autobiography. Uh, and so I'm, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, what would it be like to be a, a galaxy that's existed for uh, more than 10 billion years, knowing that you're going to live for another, you know, like trillion years, depending on how the universe ends. Uh, and so I, that's, that's been really fun. 
that is so cool. Uh, I can't wait to to read it. And then I can interview you again when it comes out and it's published. Yeah. So that's yeah. a very easy excuse. Nancy wants to know, have you ever considered using Minecraft as an aid to build these worlds? I have considered it. I would absolutely love to, but I, I don't know how to Minecraft. There was um, a, a brief live show uh, by one of the co-founders of Caveat, Ben Lilly. Caveat's this really cool, or it was this really cool science communication space in New York. Um, and his show, Ben's show, was building out worlds on Minecraft. Um Huh. So it would be yeah yeah maybe Caveat, we could do a little oh, crossover. It was super cool yeah yeah I, I did events with them I, I'm unfortunately the COVID pandemic really hit them hard uh, just like many many other live venues uh, it used to be a, a go to place like if you needed something cool and nerdy to do on a random night in New York you go to Caveat but yeah. Um, Sadly, uh, they're they're. I'm hopefully hopefully they will return to the scene someday soon. Hopefully. So, what what are your plans post PhD? Are you doing the postdoc game? Are you going to a lab? Are you gonna like like explode into the science communication scene? Am I gonna work for you in a few years? <laughs> Um, I don't know about that last part, but the plan is to explode into the science communication scene. Uh, So I'll defend in April, and then um, I'll have some time to really plan out season two of ExoLore uh, and really get all of my ducks in a row there so that I can make it the best version of itself. And I'm teaching my world building class again in the summer. Uh, So you can learn how to use facts to build fictional worlds. Uh, If you're working on a story or a game or or a script or whatever. Uh, And I will be working on writing the book. That's that takes me out to about a year from now. (laughs) Beyond that, I have no idea. Yeah. What? There's no point in planning out further than a year. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to host my own TV show one day though. That's, that's the goal. Yeah, too bad uh, the second season of The New Cosmos already took the the name Possible Worlds. Yeah. There, oh, so you got to think, uh, what is it going to be, alternative worlds? I Different get, worlds, yeah. like Possible Worlds is already taken. I know. And, and Netflix had Alien Worlds come out last Alien year. Alien Worlds. Which was so good. I was so mad when uh, when I saw the trailer for it. I was like, oh, they're That's... doing EXO lore, but like better because it's Netflix. Because you know? <laughs> they have money and a budget. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. This is my advice to you. Uh, so many times you will be discouraged because you'll think someone already did your idea. But you know what? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter because... Uh, no one has your perspective and no one has your voice on any topic. And so you always bring something new to the table. I'm going to write that down and, and tape it to the back of my wall by my desk. <laughs> no, it takes, it takes a, it, it, it's uh science communication is a very, very strange world. Yeah. I could, uh, speaking of strange worlds, uh, I could go on for a half hour, but this is me interviewing you. Um, how, <laughs> In our last few minutes, how have you seen your journey in science communication? Both how have the the public received your efforts to to communicate and share science in this very cool way, and then how have your peers done it? I know you're still you still need to defend your your dissertation, so you know if you don't want to dish all the dirt, that's okay uh, because they. But wait until the signatures, and then we'll have you come back on. And you can tell the real story. But just okay. what what how, what have you seen? Um, well, the reaction from my department, and I'm being honest here, not just saying it, you know, to 
to stay safe. Um, but my department's been really supportive of my science communication work. Um, my advisor does a lot of science communication himself. His name's David Kipping, and he has the Cool Worlds YouTube channel. So that question may have been from him. <laughs> um, but they, even if they don't necessarily understand all the SciComm work that I want to do, they've definitely been supportive. Um, and I, I'm just really excited to be getting into SciComm at a time when there are a lot of other cool young people getting into SciComm. Um, you know, people like Ashley Walker and Serafina Nance and, you know, just like other people, Keyshawn Ivory, like people who are doing amazing communication work and we can lean on each other and build off of each other's stuff. And that's, that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. One last question before you go. What's your favorite kind of cheese? That's that's the most important question you've asked all Mm -hmm, night. mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Gonna go with smoked Gouda. Smoked Gouda for the Mm -hmm. win. An excellent, refined choice. Moya, where can people find more about you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, My handle is GoAstroMo. A lot easier to spell than my first name. And you can follow Exolore. Uh, The handle is ExolorePod, Twitter and Instagram. And in my website, you said earlier, is MoyaMcTeer.com, which has all of the other links in case you just want to remember one place to go. MoyaMcTeer.com. Moya, thank you so much for sharing this half hour with us. It was an absolute pleasure to uh, talk with you, and I'm sure we will be following your career very closely. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you. It's been a treat. All right. No, the real treat is the cheese that I'm about to eat. (laughs) True. All right. Thank you. Yeah. That, That was fun, audience. That was really fun. But, you know, a good interview makes me so hungry. I'm so hungry right now because because I've been staring at this cheese um, this whole time. While I was paying attention to Moya and our very cool guest. So I'm going to eat some cheese and uh, talk about some science. Our cheese today is brought to you by domscheese.com. That's D-O-M-S cheese.com. Yes, they ship nationwide and probably worldwide if you asked them uh if you don't know i'm unwrapping the cheese that's it if you don't know if they'll ship to your particular location just shoot them an email or call them they're great they'll respond they will send you some cheese i noticed recently that they're promoting raclette kits you know with that 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 melty swiss cheese and it comes with a box with like potatoes and cornichon and like crackers is like yeah get a raclette kit and have it shipped to you because that's awesome And as soon as I unwrapped today's cheese from Dom's Cheese, the room filled with this amazing, amazing scent from my Tellagio that they gave to me. Look at that Tellagio. Look at that. This is a soft, semi-soft cheese from Italy. It's washed rind. It is, uh, has a very, very thin crust. Like you can see like this, This rind is incredibly thin, a nice creamy texture, but it holds together. Taleggio is one of my favorite cheeses. Well, all the cheeses are one of my favorite cheeses, let's be honest. And so I know this is going to be a treat. It's this wonderful aroma. It's a very smelly cheese, but not in a bad way. It's just like it makes itself known. Like it walks into the room and says, hey, guys, I'm Taleggio and I'm here to entertain you. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such an interesting combination of flavors because you have that. You ex- it, What's interesting about Telegio is you expect it to go in one direction. You expect it to go like really deep and dark, like a really solid brie. But then it like instead like milds up and lightens up like in a like in a dom or like a mild uh, gouda. And a lot of things when they try to strike the balance between two worlds, you know, fail. But not but not to let you. Thank you, Dom's Cheese. Domscheese.com. I promise to answer some space gear questions. Um I wanted to talk about today the NASA's test launch of the SLS. It failed after a minute. They they reached a fault and they had to shut the thing off. I mean, it didn't blow up, which is a plus, I guess. But also it didn't work for the full eight-minute run, which is a bad thing. What is the state? Maybe next week we'll talk about the possible state of, of where is the SLS going? Where is the Artemis program going with the new Biden administration? Let's let's just save that till next week. But I do want to answer one Space Cadet question. We have a question from Physics Guruji. Good morning. It's 6.43 a.m. in India. What are you doing up so early? Can you tell me a little bit about the presence of supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxy? Why is it there? We think that every galaxy in the universe has a giant supermassive black hole in its core. We aren't exactly sure why. We do know that they're, they, they co-evolve, that every galaxy is a supermassive black hole. Every supermassive black hole as a galaxy associated with this. They grow together. So as the galaxy gets bigger, so does the supermassive black hole. How did it start? Did, were the black holes there first, then the galaxies like accumulated around them? Or did the galaxies just accumulate enough matter and then eventually you end up with a giant black hole in the center? We're not exactly sure which came first. We do know that they both appear extremely early in the history of the universe. When our universe is like 500 million years old, we already have galaxies. We already have supermassive black holes. We've got one. It's called Sagittarius A-Star, and it's a treat. Listen, if you want to support the show, go to MoyaMcTeer.com. That's the best way to support the show and support her outreach work. But uh, if that's not enough for you, go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. It's your contributions that keep the show going. I really do appreciate it. Also, if you're listening live on YouTube right now, you can do a super chat and contribute right now any amount you wish at this very moment. Listen, thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. That's patreon.com slash PM Sutter. Also brought to you by Dom's Cheese, D-O-M-S Cheese.com. And also brought to you by... Brought to you by Moya McTeer for providing all the exceedingly interesting content this evening. Thank you, Nancy Graziano, for producing the show, arranging the guests, and wrangling the space guests. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the links. And, of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. (laughs) 